Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. I'm also a certified financial planner, just like Jeff. This show is all about helping you discover what matters most and then helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with those goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, he's the president and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb right outside of Atlanta. Jeff, what's on our plate today? You know, uh, Mike, I do have a topic I'd, I'd love to discuss, but before we start, I would love to model for the audience, and I'd like for us to go big. Like a really big <laughs> breakfast? Is that, what is that what you're talking about? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I want us to go big. I want us to go B-I-G. I want us to go, uh, begin in gratitude. Awesome. Awesome. Great. That's a great habit. So what are you grateful for right now, Jeff? Um, well, I mean, right now, I'm just so grateful that uh, you guys are joining me in this journey, and I just want to acknowledge how thankful I am that um, the KFG team here, um, and you in particular, Mike, are assisting me in these these podcasts. So what about you? What, what, are you, what are you grateful for right now? Well, it's kind of you to say, but I, so we had our third child earlier this year, wow. and so grateful for that blessing. But then I would also add, you know, every now and then I'm, I'm grateful for a full night's sleep or <laughs> eating a warm meal. Yeah. Uh, but, but all in all, very grateful for that blessing, that joy in our life. Yeah. Th- thanks, Mike. You know, I, I have found, you know, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about process, but I, in, our, in, our, in the last podcast, but I have found that, you know, gratitude really does set the stage um, for growth as we acknowledge, you know, how truly fortunate we are. And I heard a term years ago that, you know, the things that we appreciate, appreciate. And yeah. I, I think that's so true. Well, it's a great habit. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm glad. I completely agree. Glad we're starting to show this way. What's on your mind for this month's show? Yeah, th- this um, this actually came from a, a friend and an investment cult- consultant that I that I work with who sent me something recently uh, that reminded me about our path to an evidence based approach to investment management, and it reminds me of how our investment philosophy has evolved and how true wisdom doesn't have to be complicated. Y- you know, I love quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to have one on our website from a jazz musician named Charles Mingus. And his quote that, that we posted said, making the simple complicated is commonplace. Making the complicated simple, awesomely simple, that's creativity. I love that. I love that. And it reminds me of another quote um, by a great pastor, Andy Stanley, down in the, in the Georgia, Atlanta area. Yep. And he said, educators take the simple and make it complex. Communicators take the complex and make it simple, oh, which great. has always stuck with me. So yeah. so today, you want to talk about simplifying the investment process? Well, not not exactly. I mean, an elegant, sophisticated investment process that looks simple and is easy to understand is a happy byproduct of what I'd like to discuss. Uh, but what I'd like to discuss is this path 
that many investors take that leads them ultimately to an evidence-based approach. Okay. Okay, great. So what did the consultant share that made you think of this as today's topic? Yeah, he, he sent me an illustration um, that I had learned about years ago. Um, and the consultant's a very academic research guy, so he actually sent the real research. Mm. Um, and it's called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's really... Um, it's really similar, and he talked about how similar it is to this path that we often take that moves us to an invest, uh, an evidence-based approach to investing. Okay, so what's the Dunning-Kruger effect? What yeah, as I mentioned, it's something I learned years ago, just didn't know the term for it. And it's really a cognitive bias where people with low ability often have this illusion that they are actually superior, and they mistakenly assess their ability to be greater than it is, their cognitive ability to be greater than it is. And then on the other hand, uh, it illustrates how people of really high ability incorrectly assume that everyone has this ability or everyone should be able to see this. So it's people that, um, uh, again, that have low understanding or low cognitive ability and have this illusion that they understand or that they're superior in some way. Mm. And there are people that actually have really high ability that really don't have a lot of understanding for people that don't get it. That's very in, interesting. In a way. So anyway, it, it was taught to me many, many years ago. And I, I actually, when I learned it, to me, it was about the path to competence. Yeah. Okay. So with by by competence, you mean the unique ability stuff that we talked about in a previous podcast? Yeah, not, not exactly. Okay. So w- we talked about competence when we when we talked about unique ability a few shows ago and we were using competence then as sort of a minimum standard and in this Dunning-Kruger effect they use competence as actually mastery right so expertise and 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 mastery so what is competence mastery what does it look like yeah well I'll I'll explain it the way I learned it many years ago at least this path to mm-hmm. competence that I that I learned many years ago and then we can talk a little bit about how it how it relates to this path to an evidence-based investment approach um, so first of all we, we we can start out an activity and we can be unconscious incompetent so there's a lot of word complication here <laughs> so I'll I'll try to be careful and alliterate this well so we start out as unconscious incompetent and so this means we don't know what we're doing, but we don't know we don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we don't know what we're doing, but we have no awareness that we don't know what we're doing. We're ignorant of the fact that we, that we don't know what we're doing. And then we move to the next stage, mm-hmm. which is a conscious incompetence. So kind of like I feel with my infant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm you, very aware yeah, you know, that I really have no idea what I'm doing. Exactly. So <laughs> a conscious incompetent still doesn't know what they're doing, but at least they know that they don't know what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? So they acknowledge that I'm, I don't have skill in this area. And then the third phase that you might move to is what you might call a conscious, incom- uh, I'm sorry, a conscious competent. So you go from conscious incompetent yep. to a conscious competent. Mm-hmm. So at the conscious competent stage, you've developed the skill or the competence but it doesn't come naturally. Mm-hmm. You really have to consciously think about it. You have to, you have to it's, it's sort of front of mind, consciously thinking about it. And then finally, hopefully, we reach mastery or what you might call unconscious competence. So at this stage, we know what we're doing and it just comes naturally to us. Mm-hmm. And so in this Dunning-Kruger effect, 
um, once we reach that stage, we oftentimes can't understand why everybody else is not at that at that place. So you go from, um, you know, an unconscious incompetent yep. to a conscious incompetent to a conscious competent, and then ultimately an unconscious incompetent. Unco- uh, so it just it just comes naturally to you. So it, it, w- real quick, an example of the of the unconscious competent is. I saw a study where they were monitoring the brain activity of new drivers. And when you learn how to drive, the brain activity, when you haven't, when it's not unconscious yet, it's just there, it takes a lot of brain power to know which pedal to push and, right. and so on. Yeah. But then about past 25, they monitor the brain activity and it's and it's next to nothing yeah. it, and because it's moved just like you said to this unconscious competent state correct yeah. you don't even think about it yeah. it comes naturally to you so what about another example yeah i i do remember uh i was talking about this with a friend of mine we were actually at the 2011 PGA championship in Atlanta uh-huh. and we were talking about some business stuff and i used this analogy as we were watching you know the best players in the world play golf who are clearly unconsciously competent so you know they do think consciously about strategy and club selection and things like that before the shot mm-hmm. but when they address the ball and their routine begins it's totally unconscious yeah, unconscious it's muscle just, memory exactly it's yeah. muscle memory and it's and it's all the stuff that they've trained so in the previous stage of conscious competent you may know what to do, but you're constantly thinking about the mechanics and my stance and my yeah. posture and my grip, yeah. and am I taking the club back on the right plane? That is being, you know what to do, but you have to think about it. And again, these golfers, these prof- at the highest level, yeah. once they set up for the shot, it's unconscious competent or unconscious mastery. They don't even, they don't even think about it. I, I can't resist. So <laughs> where on the spectrum is your game today? <laughs> well, I'm probably the conscious Incompetent. <laughs> so I, I, I can't seem to master the skills, but at least I know I haven't mastered the skills. So, oh, that's so I'll be asking for strokes on the uh, on the first tee. Okay, got it, got it. All right, so how does this all relate to the evolution of an evidence-based investment approach? Yeah, so this is, again, what my, what my friend had shared, um, and it looks something like this. So we start out thinking, um, again, this is the – unconscious incompetent. So yep. we just start out thinking, well, investing has to be easy. Just buy the investments that are obviously going to go up. Because obviously, the uh, you know, you and I both know the capital markets don't work that way. Right. But many investors think, well, it just ought to be easy. I mean, you know, we see, you know, people lined up outside the Apple store, just buy Apple that's because exactly it always right. goes up. That's and, right. You know, um, so, I guess, so I guess that's where I would, I guess that's what I would start. You know, it's like Will Rogers said, uh, don't gamble. Take all your savings and buy some good stocks and hold them till they go up. Then sell it. If they don't go up, don't buy them. Yeah. So that's a that's a pretty good <laughs> that's a pretty good quote about yeah. being unconscious incompetent because there's obviously clearly no understanding of the capital markets, but they don't know they don't have understanding. Yeah. Then we move to this conscious incompetent stage where you have a recognition that investing is difficult or it's hard. And and I have no idea what's going to go up. So you just at least recognize I don't I don't I don't get it. But at least I know that I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I, I know I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And then we can move uh, to the next phase where you say, okay, investing is hard, and so therefore I might as well just buy everything. Yeah. And this is this is sort of the indexing 
mentality. And then finally, when you when you reach this skill area of mastery, you might say, well, investing is easy. You know, why doesn't everyone see the obvious? Because due to the arithmetic of active management, they'd be better off if they just use lower cost, select active strategies. And so that would be that would be this ev- this final evolution of this evidence based approach. And you don't really understand. Why is everybody not adopting this evidence-based approach? You said a phrase in there that I want you to expand on, the arithmetic of active management. Yeah, this essentially comes from a paper that um, William Sharp at Stanford wrote many, many years ago. And actually, the name of the paper, you could, the audience can Google it and read the paper and, and, and see the math behind it. But the name of the paper is The Arithmetic of Active Management by William Sharp. And again, it proves that since active and passive returns in total represent the market. And so over time, uh, since they are the total market, both active managers and passive managers are the, are the market. And since active managers are more expensive, mm. it follows that after cost returns for active must be lower than passive in the aggregate. Mm. That takes some thinking, but I, I follow you. I agree with you. Any more recent research on the challenges of active management? Yeah, and I and I wrote about this in a in a blog post recently. So, Dimensional Fund Advisors annually puts out a research pe- uh, paper that they call the Mutual Fund Landscape Report, and and they just put out they just put out the last one. And uh, essentially, they look at about five thousand actively managed mutual funds in this proxy. So we can just use mutual funds as a proxy for active management. So they looked at about 5,000 mutual funds. They looked at active managers. They eliminated index funds, obviously, and they eliminated or they aggregated various share classes. Okay. So if you had a growth fund that had five different share classes, they aggregated the returns and they averaged the expenses. Yep, makes sense. And so when they analyzed those funds, it represents about $9 trillion in invested wealth. And over a 15-year period of those active equity funds, only about 14% of them survived and beat their Morningstar index. Wow. So the odds just aren't very good. Right. So, and they also in the report looked at, um, you know, the recent past performers. So those that were in the top quartile, the top 25%, mm-hmm. over a three-year period, what were the odds that they repeated in the next three-year period? Yeah, so that they're they, still a top performer correct, in the next period. Yeah. That's right. So they looked at these top quartile performers, the top 25% over every rolling three-year period, and say, how did they do in the next three-year period? Mm-hmm. And almost 75% fell out of the top quartile. Wow. And that's how most people pick funds, obviously, in their 401k. They'll look at what did well last year, and, well, let's buy some of that. And so just purely ba- uh, basing it based on past winners didn't help either. And there were some characteristics that improved the odds. For instance, lower cost, lower turnover, improved mm-hmm. the odds, but it was still what I would describe as a, as a loser's game. So that's just a little bit more research that confirms what you know William Sharp wrote many, many years ago about the arithmetic of active management. Mm-hmm. That's just difficult. So if 13 or 14% of the active guys are beating their benchmark, it's really difficult to find those outperforming managers in advance. Well, and it also underscores that unconscious, incompetent state earlier where someone can just step up to the plate and say, this is easy. I'll just pick an investment that's going to yeah, go up, right? Correct. It's it's uh, the, prof- the, the pros, even, just statistically aren't really getting it right. Well, so. and, that, and that's part of the problem, uh, meaning there are so many, quote, 
smart pros yeah. that getting an edge is very difficult. Right. Right. Because they're all competing against each other. Of course. So the game has gotten so difficult that the odds that you and I could pick in advance uh, a manager that's going to survive and outperform over the next 15 years are just not very good, 13 to 14%. You mentioned earlier uh, a promise that this approach could make the complicated more simple. So can you explain that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded uh, in the early years in, in the business, we used to get quarterly these huge notebooks from either Value Line oh, yeah. or a group called CDA Weisenberger, which was a precursor to Morningstar, yeah. and ultimately Morningstar. So we would get these big, giant books quarterly. So every th- we had to wait three months yeah. to get research on what happened on these funds. And we would dig through these research reports and try to figure out how we could get an edge and how can we find the uh, the outperforming manager. Later, we started getting CD-ROMs delivered. I was just going to say quarterly, that. Quarterly, yeah, right. and, then, and then ultimately monthly. And then, of course, by the late 90s, it all became available on the internet and, and daily. We were cleaning out an old room here at KFG, and we found oh, all those yeah, CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It br- brings back memories. Yeah. <laughs> and so we would get enamored by um, this research, thinking that we were uh, you know, that we were adding a lot of value. Or, or worse than that, you know, we'd have a really sharp you know, representative from one of the fund companies or, or investment houses, uh, and they would come in, you know, with donuts or Chick-fil-A sandwiches in Atlanta, uh, <laughs> and they would have a compelling story. And, um, you know, I used to enjoy traveling to New York and visiting with these managers. So I would go get an audience with some of these managers in New York, and because and, I believed it was all about the four Ps. I believed it was all about finding the people, the philosophy, the process, and ultimately, that would lead to performance. And so, you know, I guess if you still believe that you can p- predict and pick these active managers, that's a reasonable process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, character matters, the people matter, th- that they eat their own cooking matters, all those kind of things. But it was still, again, the odds were not very good. We can improve the odds by these processes, but we still it was still so difficult because the way the game is, is played today. So by going to this evidence-based approach, uh, it's created a lot of freedom because I'm not going to New York many, uh, visiting these managers. Sure. Uh, I, I don't have to dig into as much research on, you know, thousands of mutual funds and wholesalers or investment representatives that want to come visit with me. Um, and, and so what I learned, you know, is that you've got to have a lot of data to determine if that active manager, uh, if the results are skill or luck. Mm-hmm. And statistically, you need about 50 years worth of data Hmm. to have some certainty that the outperformance is because of skill. So the long answer is it's freed up a lot more time to focus on the more important elements like portfolio construction, um, tax planning, coaching clients, behavioral coaching, things that add a lot more value than picking the best manager. So the reason that it has simplified the process and has created margin to do higher value things is we're not doing as many of those manager visits and uh, around these active managers. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. That's that's a wise wise approach. What are the main characteristics of evidence-based investing? Yeah, I mean, evidence-based investing is a term that a lot of people are using today, and I, I, I guess like a lot of things in finance, it can have different meanings, but the way we use it, it, it essentially means that you're building portfolios based on solid academic research as opposed to hunches, intuition, or a good story, mm-hmm. which is how many people invest. And if you're going to use a research-based approach, the research should really have four main characteristics in our view. The research should be independent and unbiased. 
Um, it should use robust data analysis, so you've got to have a lot of data. Uh, the results must be repeatable and reproducible. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the research needs to be published and peer-reviewed so there is some active debate about it. Yeah, right? it's is incredible. This, is this really a factor or is it just data mining? Mm -hmm. And so it has to be published and out in the academic space so that people can debate it and, and dig into it. So those mm -hmm. are the four characteristics I think you have to have if you're going to rely on the on the research. Mm -hmm. You said that the term evidence-based investing is more commonplace in, in the financial world, but why have m more people not moved to an evidence-based approach? Well, I mean, there are financial incentives in our industry not to move there, for, <laughs> yes. one, for one thing. <laughs> Um, I, I, I saw a quote from Upton Sinclair, um, and his quote was, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I know John Bogle has a, has a similar quote. Um, so there's an agency problem. Mm -hmm. There's something that in academic uh, world or, or, or in, um, you know, in investing that's, that's, that, that you might call the agency problem, and it's, and it's when you have a conflict of interest in a relationship when one person is supposed to act in someone else's best interest. And the agency problem arises when there is an incentive for the agent to act in a way that doesn't that's not good for the client or good for the for the principal. Yeah. Because the incentives are aligned in such a way so that the agent is incented not to act in their best interest. So that's that's part of the part of the problem. Right. I can see that. At a high level, can you tell us how the construction of your evidence-based portfolio is different than maybe some of your previous strategies? Yeah, I'll just I'll just do this very simply. Um, our listeners can you know can check out more of this on our website. But essentially, what we have done is we have about uh, over sixty percent of the equities are in what we describe as these core strategies. Okay. And these core strategies are low-cost, tax-efficient, index-like strategies that tilt the portfolio to certain factors that the evidence has suggested over time delivers higher expected returns, like value, small cap, and more profitable stocks. So 60% or more of the portfolio are in these core tax-efficient, low-cost strategies. And then we build around them with um, where we're targeting some of these other factors, Got it. like the momentum factor, or we want to have a bigger tilt to the small, um, I'm targeting the value factor, or we might use a um, what I call an alternative, uh, alternative uh, style premium strategy, or even multiple asset classes like REITs. So mm -hmm. the idea is we've got this low-cost core, and then we build around the core with these other factor-based approaches that we want to have uh, additional exposure to. So core satellite approach to something like that. intelligent. Okay, got That's it. That's correct. correct. So where can, I've just learned that sometimes this is hard to really communicate well over the radio waves. So so yeah. where can listeners get a little more information about the evidence-based approach and your philosophy? Yeah, so I, I think the easiest way is just on our website. We have four very short videos. Uh, I think they total 16 minutes, so four minutes each roughly. Mm -hmm. Uh, at uh, at our webpage, tandemgrowth.com, and then just go to the investment uh, forward slash investment philosophy, and there are these four short videos that walk through this evidence-based approach a lot more elegantly than I probably did today. <laughs> Don't tell yourself short there. Uh, any final comments before we wrap up today, Jeff? Yeah, I, I guess I would just like to remind the audience the theme I'm, I'm hoping that we can convey in these shows 
and that is that you can have a high-quality, sophisticated wealth management plan without sacrificing the deeper, what some people call integral planning that is so important, which is understanding what values you have, what matters to you, sort of the the internal planning, the purpose, Mm -hmm. the goals and purpose. So you don't have to sacrifice a sophisticated wealth management plan um, with you know money and meaning type issues uh, that we that we've been discussing, yeah. and also that investors can build these uh, sophisticated all weather portfolios that do not have to be complex or expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So hitting right there at the intersection of money and meaning, which is what the podcast is all about. So. There you have it. Another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier is in the books. I hope you found this information, this discussion helpful. Don't forget, you can check out previous episodes or read Jeff's blog or see the philosophy and check out Jeff's website all right there at tandemgrowth.com for the previous episodes and the blog do forward slash perspectives. Thanks, folks. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC,